Uh, my name is Sarah. As I mentioned earlier, I'm the executive director of Forefront New York City Church. All pronouns are okay with me. Um, and welcome. Thanks for tuning in. We're a progressive uh, contemporary church here in um, Brooklyn. And this sermon, I want to talk about something that a lot um, of our staff has been discussing amongst ourselves, which is the fact that we feel something akin to grief, or something like grief, actually, about the fact that we don't know when we'll be able to be in the same corporate place, praying together, singing together, eating bagels together for who knows how long. I mean, it'll probably be a staggered process. We definitely wouldn't be able to all be together um, for a long time. And it's a really sad thing. And I think it's forcing us to get creative about how what our spirituality looks like when it's not anchored by that weekly rhythm of corporate worship and gathering. And we as a staff definitely don't have answers. Um, you know, I think we're just racking our brains trying to figure out how to rewrite the script of church, especially when we are all tired of Zoom. And I think we need your answers and need your help. But I want to kick off the discussion by talking about the passages in the scripture that deal with the construction of the tabernacle. And by tabernacle, I, I don't mean temple. That actually comes later. The tabernacle is something we hear about for the first time, really, in Moses in Mount Sinai. And God is giving Moses instructions like, you know, the Ten Commandments, laws on how to treat your neighbor, annual festivals you have to observe. Essentially, God is giving Moses like a starter package for how to build a nation. Like, this is your July 4th holiday. These are your criminal laws. These are your property laws. This is your White House. I'm going instructions how to build your White House, except I'm living in it, not you, Moses. Um, and so this is the part where God says, have the Israelites make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among them. This is Exodus 25. Tell the Israelites to take from me an offering from all whose hearts prompt them to give. You shall receive the offering from me. This is the offering you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and copper, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, dolphin skins, and acacia wood. So he's listing all the materials you need to build the tabernacle. And the, the best part is the dolphin skins part, um, which I think I have it in the slide there. And not all uh, translations render it. Some people put fine leather. I think that's what NRSV does, which is very disappointing. Um, but uh, if you look at sort of in Hebrew, the, so Jewish commentators feel like this is referring to the skins of an animal that they call the tehosh. Um, which they believe to be an animal with a single horn in its head with this beautiful multicolored skin. So basically it's a rainbow unicorn, which is really great. Um, but, you know, if we zoom out a little bit, let's think about like, why does God need a dwelling place? You know, isn't God omnipresent everywhere? And it's a great question. And actually the Bible itself asks this question. Um, here is a selection from Isaiah 66. This says the Lord, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made. So what's kind of great about the Bible is that it's, it's kind of engaged in this conversation of self-critique. For any point it makes, it basically makes the opposite point um, somewhere else in the text. And that can be frustrating when you're, you know, trying to look for absolute certainty. But if you embrace it, it actually is kind of fun. So one of the ways that this paradox is resolved um, that's suggested by the commentators is that the purpose of the tabernacle is less for God and more for Israel. Essentially, the Israelites want a physical marker of the sign of God's presence, of God's covenant between them. 
because all these other civilizations have like huge temples and sacred mountains. So what does Israel have? So maybe this tabernacle is a way of God meeting Israel halfway and saying, you know, you know, my presence is everywhere, but I get you need something more. So I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you instructions how to make a tabernacle. So here's one rendering of what the tabernacle would have looked like. As you can see from the slide, it's pretty ornate. Lots of gold, lots of bling, lots of like fine linen. I'm in, I want you to zoom in on the section within tabernacle that's marked off by kind of a violet curtain. And there's like this box looking thing inside. Um, so that's the ark, which contains the two tablets of Ten Commandments, and this is the section that's called the Most Holy Place. And God gives really specific instructions on how to make this entire tabernacle, including the ark. So here it is. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. It shall be two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, a cubit and a half high. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. So coincidentally, I've recently started taking out woodworking, one of the COVID uh, hobbies. And so, because I've run out of IKEA furniture to construct. So these instructions are sort of really coming alive for me right now. Uh, and a cubit is about 18 inches. So you're talking about something that's about almost four feet long and two feet wide. And the arc also, very importantly, has four rings attached to it. And that's important because you can insert poles through the rings and then lift up the arc and just bring it wherever you need to go. Which is really important because it has to be portable. In fact, the entire tabernacle has to be a portable dwelling place for God. So on the outside, one artist kind of looked, modeled it up, and it looks kind of like this. It's a bit like anticlimactic looking on the outside, in my opinion. Like inside, it's a lot of golds and jewels and incense, but outside it looks like some dude's like man cave tent where he like grills meat and watches Tiger King. Um, but th the portability of the whole thing, though, is really key because the Israelites are transient. They are moving, they don't have a home, they left their like quote-unquote home in Egypt. Um, and later on they'll settle down, they'll go to the promised land, they'll, you know, build a temple temple. But for now they have this portable holy tent. And I, I think I've talked to a bunch of you who feel like you're in a similar place. You're kind of between homes, or maybe you're at home with your family, but it doesn't quite feel like home. It's not the most conducive place to feel like spiritually centered or to be reading progressive theolo theology books. Um, and you're not sure where you end up after just dust settles. Like, will you have a job to be able to move back to New York City, all that kind of stuff. And I think even for those of us who stayed in New York, um, I think all of us are missing that physical temple, right? The place, the roulette where we gather to worship. So all of this means that we have to shift from temple spirituality to portable spirituality. We have to reframe what holy looks like. Something that can move with us, something that we can take with us no matter where we go. We have to think about what it looks like to create holy spaces and moments um, in our own apartments or our rooms. So if we accept the fact that a tabernacle was not constructed for God as much as for Israel, then what does the construction of the tabernacle teach us about ourselves? What can we learn from the fact that you know, God instructs the Israelites that when they're weaving the garment of the priest to make sure that the lower hem has gold bells alternating with pomegranates of blue and crimson yarn, what can we learn from the fact that the sacred oil used to anoint the priest consists of 500 shekels of myrrh and aromatic cane and 250 shekels of cinnamon and olive oil? I think for me at least, my takeaway is that we are embodied people with senses. We need that kind of smell, that waft of incense. We need to see the physical curtain saying this is where God dwells. We need a priest to wear fancy clothes with like golden bells in order to see them as holy. In other words, religion cannot be 
something that just exists in our brains and our heads. Um, we need to be able to see it, to touch it, to smell it. And we're not a church that, you know, uses incense or, you know, Jonathan and I like put on a nice shirt and Mackenzie and Angela wear nice things, but we're not wearing like gold bells with like pomegranate yarns. Um, but I still think many of us are used to walking to the roulette uh, and hearing like, you know, that waft of ambient poppy music, <laughs> you know, smelling the bagels and the coffee and hearing the chatter, people greeting one another. And then something in our brain says, okay, I'm going to slow down a little bit. I know I'm not going to check my phone too much. I'm that entering into church. It's like your brain signals are triggering. I'm entering into a sacred space. So what do we do in the absence of a physical church, in the absence of those traditional cues we have? So I have a, a couple of thoughts. Um, first, I think we can think creatively about how to create physical sacred cues in our own homes, things that will trigger our brains to remind ourselves not that, you know, this thing is holy or this is sacred, but that we are always in the presence of holiness. That, you know, when you wake up in the morning and the sun kind of hits your mug of coffee and you're just kind of sitting there present with it, that is a holy moment. That the act of dusting off your sewing machines, as some of you have done. I'm thinking of, you know, Jody and Lainey and Sarahan and Carol and sewing masks. You may not be sewing the garments of the holy priest, but you are still embarking on a holy act. I think we have to try more than ever to try to bring the sacred into the mundane and profane than ever before. So one of the things I really like about the passages on the tabernacle is that the Bible makes clear that the construction is primarily carried out by a few specialized artisans. Like, what's it? Bezalel? Bezalel? Sorry, my partner's there correcting my Hebrew pronunciation. Um, but yet, all of Israel is given credit for the construction. So here's the verse. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Was Moses saw that they had done all the work just as the Lord commanded, he blessed them. So you might ask, you know, how can this be? Not everyone did the work. Some people were just chilling. Like other people, there are people who are doing most of the labor, building the temple. One of the things the Jewish commentators say is that the artisans like Bezalel, who were, you know, crafting the gold and stuff like that, were doing their work as authorized representatives of their community. A community that supplied them with the materials, like, you know, rainbow unicorn skin, if you're rich, or if you're poor, like some hair from your goats. Um, and so I, the takeaway for me is that Giving today is quite easy. You just swipe on Venmo, you go to a URL, whether you're giving to church or charity, and it feels like a simple, almost thoughtless act. But the truth is when we do so, we are authorizing people on the front lines to act on behalf. We are performing in some ways a holy act, even if we're not in the front lines doing the work. Um, as Jonathan mentioned in his weekly email, and if you don't get this weekly email, so you can get it by 4.nyc.com slash email. Um, we've had an anonymous donor step up and say, you know, we can't be as present with our time as we usually are because we're overwhelmed personally. So we want to give our money and essentially authorize the church to work on our behalf. And we're going to match up to $10,000 any money given to our Clarity and Crisis Fund, which is distributed to congregants in need and the nonprofit partners who are in need. So that is holy work, even if they're not necessarily doing the work itself. Um, obviously, this gift is like a huge gesture, um, but some of you have also just volunteered to be part of our care team, which we recently launched, um, to help our staff check in on the, uh, the 1,000 people in our database of kind of anyone who's walked through our doors over the past couple of years to see if anyone needs food, supplies, money, mental health counseling. You are sending holy emails when you do them. And even the simple act of staying inside and not spreading the virus is an act that helps our healthcare and hospital workers. 
So for me, you know, personally speaking, a large part of what spirituality means is to be feel connected to something larger that transcends myself. So a collective to connect it to God. And so for me, I have this small painting. I don't know where I put it. Oh, here it is. Um, an icon of saints that I bought in a monastery, um, Catholic monastery upstate. And I put it just above my archway. So when I walk underneath it, basically, I, I, I'm reminded that I'm surrounded by a cloud of spiritual ancestors who kind of watch over me. But as you probably remembered, uh, the saints are kind of blonde and pretty white. So I also have um, my, a photo frame of my uh, deceased grandparents and my great aunt that I put on this cabinet thing with like some religious objects and plants. And when I wake up in the morning, I have to pass it. And that's kind of my like spiritual altar. And if I um, usually I forget to do anything and I'm just like on my phone tripping on my cat on the way to the bathroom. But when I do remember, I try to sit down and meditate and like for five minutes and just pray and ask for their wisdom and protection. So, you know, these are all just ideas, obviously. But so far, I've talked about the sanctity of space. Now I want to talk about the sanctity of time. So when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, there are a number of things that are called holy. There's the most holy place with the ark thing. There's the holy vestments the priests wear. And there's, um, you know, the holy anointing oil that you would pour on the priests. But there's another thing that's called holy that is not physical. And to know what that is, you have to rewind back to the first thing Moses says before he even utters a single word about the tabernacle. Um, I don't know if anyone can guess it, but anyhow, spoiler, here's the answer. These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy Sabbath of solemn, solemn rest to the Lord. So notice here that um, the Sabbath is included in a list of things that you're commanded to do. So resting is an active thing you have to do. It's not just the absence of work. And Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel remarks that the Sabbath is one of the unique distinctions of Judaism. Most religions have like sacred temples or mountains or spaces, but in Judaism, what is deemed holy from the very beginning in Genesis is not space or land, but time. So here's Heschel, who says, expounds on this a bit more. Judaism is a religion of time aiming at the sanctification of time. The Sabbaths are our great cathedrals, and our Holy of Holies is a shrine that neither the Romans nor the Germans were able to burn, a shrine that even apostasy cannot easily obliterate. So for a lot of uh, Christians, our practice of our faith is tied to worshiping in a public, physical building. But for Jews who are historically a persecuted minority, you can never be sure, you know, when your synagogue is going to get burned down by like a mob of Christians. And so I think that's one of the reasons why over time, uh, the most important rituals in Judaism actually take place in the home and not in synagogue, like the Passover Seder or Shabbat dinner. Um, and some of you have heard me say this before, but my partner is Jewish and we sort of loosely observe um, Sabbath. So when the sun sets on a Friday evening and Shabbat is a 24-hour, technically 26-hour experience, um, you know, sometimes she'll light the candles and sing a prayer in Hebrew and bless the wine and bread before us. And I think all of those things are super important sensory triggers for me to be like, oh, I'm smelling the wine. I'm, I'm seeing the candles. And it helps my mind slow down and say, okay, it's time to rest. Sabbath is beginning. This is a sacred moment. And it's really meant to be a communal meal. So sometimes we like, do a meal with friends over Zoom, and the next morning we would go to usually go to temple for services, but now we do that over Zoom as well. We try not to check our phones or do work, but usually, you know how it is. Um, what what is really great about um, Shabbat is that there's a ritual not only to begin it but to end it called Havdalah, where you sing 
um, different prayers in Hebrew, you light candles, and then you pass around sweet aromatic spices um, that you can smell, like cinnamon or cloves, um, so that you can carry the sweetness of rest with you throughout the rest of the week. And so obviously this ritual has been disrupted by the pandemic, but what I like about it is that the core of it remains. Um, Abby once said to me that, you know, ritual is what makes the mundane sacred. And Judaism is a very embodied religion. There's a prayer and blessing for everything. When you wake up, when you go to the bathroom, uh, after you use the bathroom, when you go to bed, different kinds of foods get different blessings. And I think it's helpful for us as Christians, particularly for those of us come from an evangelical background, maybe for the Catholics, you're, you got your ritual thing said. But to think about the role of ritual in our lives. And I think the most important one, I think, for us, particularly living age, is the ritual of Sabbath rest. So the meet and greet question that you all answer was, when's the last time you had good rest? And I saw mostly the parents are like, what is rest? And everyone else, but even some people without kids are like, you know, it's, it often has been hard to sleep. My energy levels are low, I'm feeling sluggish. And when I'm talking about good rest, I'm not just talking about, you know, I'm so exhausted. I knocked out as soon as my head hit the pillow or... I sort of vegged out and watched Netflix after, you know, after a long day of work. I'm talking about really like deep rest, the kind of rest you feel in your bones. And you know what that might look like for you. Maybe that is, you know, turning off your phone for a little bit, journaling, being in nature. But what does it look like for you to demarcate sacred time for you to rest? And I mostly am just preaching to myself. You know, some of you have asked me when I've been able to drive and drop off supplies at your home or mass. It's like, how's it going? And usually I say like, oh, I kind of like emergencies. Like I like feeling useful, like feeling I have a mission. So it's like, you know, I, I think I'm pretty good for this job. And then uh, my partner said to me recently, it's like, Sarah, I think you're really not good for this job. And I was like, why? And she was like, you already have this like savior martyr complex. So this role you're taking on is just making your ego way worse. And so, I mean, it's true also, you know, I, t I, I treat everything, you know, as a super emergency. I get stressed, I can't prioritize, and everyone gets stressed around me. Um, and so on one hand, yes, I am busier than ever before. But on the other hand, I think I also have more time to myself because I'm not like taking subway and seeing people as much. And it's this kind of weird paradox that I, I don't know if you also are feeling as one. And instead of filling my like free time, so to speak, with like, a lot of tasks or distractions, some of which are good. Um, I have to remind myself, and this might not be true for you, it's just true for me, but this is actually kind of an opportunity to practice a kind of semi-monastic life in New York City, which is pretty rare. To sit with myself and see what comes up that maybe I don't allow myself to feel when I'm running around all the time and work with the, those emotions, those feelings with my therapist, my friends, my small group, etc. But it's obviously very hard to feel at rest when you're stressed about money and finances, when you're wondering, you know, if I, what, what happens if I get sick because I have the worst plan on Oscar, or how do I pay, you know, my rent or mortgage when I'm out of income? And I get, you know, outside of church, I work as a freelance writer, and so being stressed about money is like a super familiar feeling. The first thing I want you to do is just to say, just to remind yourself that it is not your fault. Like, don't beat yourself up. The fact that our ability to be healthy, to eat food, to cover ourselves with clothes, to have a roof over our heads, is tied to our ability to convince some random people that they should give us money for our labor is a completely arbitrary thing. It's absurd. It's not our choice or fault. It's a design. 
of like American capitalism. And um, so just know that it's not your fault. Second thing I'd like you to do is to let us help you. We've raised thousands of dollars to help people in our congregation. We have people ready to sew and mail masks to anyone who needs it. We have a new care team led by Zanifa um, Campbell, whose goal is to make sure that our, our congregation is taken care of materially, spiritually, mentally. Um, we have volunteers like Yulia and Sean ready to pick up and deliver groceries if you can't leave your homes. You have life and career coaches like Jen, Sam, and Danielle who are willing to look over your resume and chat with you. We have therapists like Krista Hughes and Janyama who want to speak with you over the phone and connect you to one of our many ther- many therapists and their networks. So this is not a time to be like, oh, someone has it worse than me. Let us make that decision. It's okay to be fine when we check in on you, but like totally not fine the next week. Just reach back out. Allow yourselves to rest and be carried by other people, by your community, by something larger than yourself. Our greeters will now, I think, repost the link for how to request help in the Facebook comments. And on that note, thank you for everyone's offered to actually pray for us as staff in my time when, when I've reached out. It's been kind of a cool pleasure to talk to so many of you. I think I've emailed at least 100 people just to check in. Um, some of you I don't think I've ever talked to in person before. And as I mentioned, like our staff is carrying a fair amount of grief over what church will look like going forward. And so, and we all just have our regular depression, anxiety as well. So um, thank you for your prayers. Thank you for giving. It allows us to do our jobs, to pay our bills. Thank you for helping us to rest. So these are just some thoughts I have on what spirituality outside of a corporate physical rhythm looks like, how to create rituals and moments to remind us of the holiness that exists all around us from physical sensory cues to temporal ones to interpersonal ones. But truly as a staff, we're all just figuring this out. So we need your help to work on this together. I'm going to close this in prayer. If you need prayer, I believe Trey Penton is the volunteer and staff. He's posting it through his fiance's account because he doesn't really use Facebook. So look for Kate Matsumoto. I think that's account you need to message. You can also just um, fill out our prayer form at 44nyc.com slash prayer. That's open 24-7. And a prayer, someone in prayer team will get back to you. Um, dear God, thank you for commanding us to rest. I pray that we may, um, put down all the things that we do, whether, um, it's intangible things like our ego that needs to feel busy all the time, or whether it's just the busyness and stress of life and money. I pray that we may be able to experience moments of rest, um, as through, um, the rituals, through our community and through your presence and your spirit. In your name, amen.